לבטוח בהשם בכל לבבך לבטוח בהשם בכל לבבך trusting Hashem with all your heart ולהאמין ולהאמין בהשכחות והפרטיס and to believe in Hashem being guiding the details of our lives ובזה and through this you will maintain in your heart the notion of complete unity meaning that even though the creation is constitutive of diverse of diversity and difference and multiplicity by doing this process of trusting in Hashem with all your heart and believing in the detailed guidance of every little situation so then you'll unify you'll perceive the universe in a holistic fashion whereby the different events that occur and the different components of the given world will not be in conflict with one another will not be in conflict with one another but will in fact be understood in the context of a uniting whole key um ubezete kaim belavavcho hayukhot asharem lahamin boy to believe in the abishta that his eyes are gazing they, they look over they peer into every nook and cranny of the world and not only do they see as it were the eyes of Hashem the world they also see you and not only do they see you in the superficial sense but they see to, in other words, Hashem's eyes. He sees to the essence. He can test your heart. He can evaluate your heart. He knows what's in the essence of who you are. And he can de- delve deeply into the way you're thinking. And now, I'm quoting to you from a paragraph from a compilation of one of the most influential Rishonim, the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher. Rabbeinu Asher was one of the most powerful in terms of his influence on modern Jewish thought and primarily modern Jewish legalistic halacha. He was one of the most influential people because he lived at a crucial time. He lived at a time which was the closing period of what we know as the period of the Rishonim who were the initial commentators on the Gemara and formulated the basis of the way we rule today in Halacha and the Rosh lived at the close of that period so he was very influential because he had everyone else's opinions available to him not only that, he was unique in that he grew up and was a leader of the community in Europe 
in I think it was in Germany which was the he had all the schools of thought from the Ashkenazi world and then he moved to Spain and was able to assimilate all the halachic teachings of the Sephardi world as well and he was hailed there as the leader of the generation as well so not only did he synthesize generations upon generations of halachic work, he also synthesized the two different traditions of the Ashkenazi and the Sephardi world, and that's why he's such a powerful halachic presence in Shulchan Aruch and other halachic works. So we're taking from a small piece that he writes. He wrote um, a compilation of little statements, almost tiny little um, sentences, which obviously were given to contemplate. There's different ways of conveying information. Sometimes if you want to give over a point, what you do is you write an essay about it. But then the transmission is very much, I have information, I'm going to give it over to you. There's another way of conveying information whereby you give the person a very small statement and you call him to contemplate upon it. It's much more meditative, the experience, whereby you give a tiny amount of information and really the beauty of the information comes about thinking about it, mulling it over in your mind, processing it, repeating it. It's throughout the different spiritual traditions in the world is a common practice. The Rosh, what he did was, he did this precise thing and he arranged small little sentences almost to guide a person in the fundamentals of life. And he wrote a variety of them. Um, one of the great sages following him, the, the Toysus Yomtev, the Yomtev Lipman, so he took this work of the Rosh and he subdivided it into seven parts, allocating a different part to be said on a different day to follow the seven days of the week. And it actually became quite a widespread custom. He also translated it into Yiddish so it would be accessible to the, to the common folk who couldn't understand the difficult Hebrew. And he then um, publicized it, spread it around the Jewish communities in Europe. Subsequently, it was taken upon, um, taken up as a primary text in what are known as the Musa Yeshivas, the Yeshivas which had a very strong bent towards self-perfection. And in Kalm, they would read the day on the day, immediately after the Shachri service, in uh, aloud, and they would do it slowly so they could contemplate on each one of the statements, and they would do this week after week after week, so that the ideas really started to penetrate their souls. Now that's where we began quoting from, that's it's on the first day, the 26th little thought, and it describes the idea of living in a world of God consciousness, living in a world where the diversity that confronts us is not perceived as conflicting forces, but as unified forces that are acting out a battle which really is bringing to a greater good. It's not a, it's not, it's not a contradiction. That the joys and the sadnesses are coming from the same source and going towards the same goal. So the Rosh says that a person should do this. Again, he's, he's giving this meditation. That a person should meditate on the fact that the world is maintained by a creator. That creator has an influence on the nitty-gritty details of our lives. Nothing is a coincidence. If it's happening, it's happening for a reason. And we have to glean the message it's teaching us and understand that things are working 
on a different level to perhaps the external perception. And then he says something which is quite startling. And until we read, the point until we read was very, as it were, sound advice in terms of connecting to the spiritual source when living in an environment in a physical universe which doesn't proclaim those things on an overt, in an overt fashion. Now this is something which is startling and he says Kimi because one the one that doesn't believe the one that doesn't believe the phrase and the idea that I took you out of Egypt he also doesn't believe in God. The first of the si- of the Ten Commandments is stated as follows: I am the Lord your God that took you out of Egypt. Comes along the Rosh and he says, if you take the second part of that statement and you cut it off and you don't combine it to Anoich Hashem so if you say, if you believe in I am the God and you don't believe in but I took you out of Egypt, then you don't believe that I am your God. In order to be able to gain the perception that he began discussing, you have to somehow link it in to the Jewish slavery and subsequent rescue and exodus from Egypt. And he goes and he says, Kimisha Eino Mamin Mizraim, a person that doesn't believe in Mizraim, He doesn't believe Now what's interesting is in terms of linguistically, he says, because again, he started off by saying a person has this perception that their things happen for a reason, and that there's a guiding force between the events in our life, even on a very basic and minute detail. And he says, because the one that doesn't believe in leaving Egypt doesn't believe in God. What do you mean because? Where's the causality? It seems to be as if he's saying, when you live life that way, you're living life with the notion of the Jews leaving Egypt. And therefore, if you don't have that as your starting point, so then the consequent perception of the world as being guided by a divine force becomes almost incomprehensible. It doesn't work. In order to gain an emuna and a bitochon, you need to come on to Yetzirah Mitzrayim, the Jewish rescue from Egypt. And he said, but if you don't, you just believe in God as let's say you have a knowledge of a higher power but the knowledge stops there so then the world doesn't become integrated there's no notion of unity there's no notion of all things working together even though apparently with discordant behavior if you go deep enough you see it's all complementary you can't do that without Egypt that's the advantage the Jewish people have is that they went through the experience of leaving Egypt nice is astonishing thing it's the foundation of the entire Torah everything rests upon this so now the Rosh has gone out in a very powerful fashion to elaborate and to expand upon what one would have thought 
is perhaps one mitzvah in the Torah. And that is the notion of coming to the realization and keeping it in the forefront of mind that once 3,000 years ago there was a Jewish people who were slaves in a place which, speaking from the perspective of time, was far, far away. Far, far away. And because of what occurred then, we have a different perception of what's occurring now. So I believe what's underneath the Rosh, the subtext or the theme, is he's dealing with the notion which is prevalent in Torah, the Hebrew word Zikoran, which is often translated as memory. But I think over here the translation of Zikoran is inappropriately translated as memory. The Torah is filled with references to different types of Zikoranus, of as we would say, memories. For example, tzitzis. Ure'isem o'isoi u'zachartim is kol mitzvahis Hashem. You'll see them, and you'll remember the mitzvahs of Hashem. We once saw the whole introduction to the Ramchal is based on the notion of memory, that a person knows what he is, but he, as it were, forgets. But I think a more accurate translation of the word zikoron would be a conscious awareness of Zikaron means that the notion that we, we are, as we're remembering, we have a conscious awareness of. It's not relevant if it was an event in the past. It's not important if it was a piece of information. It means living on a conscious level with the information. A conscious awareness of. A conscious awareness of whatever the point of. Now, within the Torah, there are a wide range of mitzvahs which all have as their focal point leaving Egypt. Tfilin. Every single morning we put them on. Every single morning we put them on. And prior to putting them on, if you pass me that cedar, please. Prior to putting them on, there's a small prayer that we say. And it basically is a declaration of purpose as to what are we doing by binding these ideas to ourselves. So if you actually read it, I'm going to read it in English, even though I don't like translations, just for the sake of time. I don't know if I can, though. I don't think I'm going to be able to pull it off. Basically, it starts to discuss that I'm putting on these to fill in, and it says, the reason why I'm putting them on is through them. Through them, I gain perception to the unity of the Creator in the world. And I will nizkor, remember, but now we're saying, how can I remember something that never happened to me? In the common usage of the word. I can't remember Egypt. I can learn about what happened, and then I can remember the lesson I learned, but I can't remember it. So I don't think zikorin means remember. It means I can create a conscious awareness of the miracles and wonders that were done to us when we left Egypt and through that I saw that he has the power and the dominion in all the realms both the upper and the lower to do as he chooses so you see that there's a declaration of purpose that Tfilin creates a level of conscious awareness that Jews have been putting on these Tfilin for 3000 years the same Tfilin and the reason why they've done that is to preserve the freshness of this event that occurred 3,000 years ago so it shouldn't 
so it shouldn't wane it shouldn't it shouldn't dim in its brightness that that same feeling that the Jews experienced as they were stepping upon the shores on the other side of the Red Sea that same astonishment and transformational spiritual experience that they went through as they walked through a sea which had split so that same that same level of knowledge on the deepest possible level that the world is but a covering for an entire spiritual mechanism that same clarity of vision and thus the unity of every force in creation it's not diverse evil is just an illusion so that is brought about by putting on twilling same thing with tzitzis you look at the tzitzis and that again creates a conscious awareness how does it create a conscious awareness because it becomes a visual symbolism of the spiritual goal of mitzvahs the begot of tzitzis is four cornered which represents the four dimensions of the natural world the four directions the strings of the tzitzis are at the extremities of those points in the corners and they have to be there and what they do is they extend beyond because the notion of mitzvah is the transcendence of the physical world the physical world is defined by its parameters it's bound in certain boundaries there's certain limitations there's direct cause and effect and the mitzvahs don't buy into any of that according to the cause and effect of the physical world whether you eat this animal slaughtered in this way or slaughtered in the other there's no consequences it'll be the same amount of cholesterol etc according to mitzvahs one is destructive and one is productive according to the natural world if you write a letter on Saturday or Sunday there's absolutely no difference according to mitzvahs in the transcendental world when things transcend so one is the destruction of a connection to a high spiritual realm and one is a act which remains completely mundane so mitzvahs are transcendent. They don't walk, work according to the rules of the spiritual cause, of the physical sorry, cause and effect. So when I look at my tzitzis, I see transcendence. I literally see transcendence. This is called transcendence. Transcendence means there's a barrier, and you go beyond the barrier. You go beyond. There's a barrier. The barrier says, this is the way things work. And you say, no, no, they work this way. So I look at it. So now I say, aha, now I know. I don't, don't let me get caught in this barrier. Don't let me not see the string that peeks out from the hole of the tzitzis and just look at the garment as purely four-cornered and that's why there's only an obligation to put on tzitzis to a four-cornered garment because that's where the, representa the, rep that's where the representation is the limitation so when there's a, a limitation you say there's no limitation I can extend beyond it the physical world dictates that when I'm hungry I eat the spiritual world dictates when I'm hungry, it depends what. If it's a fast day, I don't eat. So it's breaking the rules. It's breaking the boundaries of the physical. The physical world is a world of survival. If it's better for me, I do it. The spiritual world is if it's better for him, I will, I'll, I'll do it for him. It breaks every rule. So when I look at the tzitzis, it becomes a conscious awareness. Not a memory. A conscious awareness of... It becomes a lens we're in to see the world so the Rosh brings about a crucial thing 
He says, in order to be able to perceive the world in a given way, you need to have a lens. And the lens will give a clarity of vision, a focus to your perception. The Rosh introduces us to the notion that we are always seeing the world through a lens. And you can choose the lens in which you see the world, through which you see the world. For example, two ways of seeing the world. One with Ashkocha, one with Ashkocha. Last night I was on a bus going to Modi Inn and we got to the entrance of Modi Inn and there was a long line of cars because the traffic lights of for left turns is a very short traffic light. So it created a mini traffic jam and the cars were lined way back. I was in a bus sitting two from two seats behind the driver and there was a person sitting in front of me. What happened was, as we were waiting in the line, a taxi obviously didn't want to be stuck so far behind and went to the front of the line to turn left on the in a in a in a no he's in a, a, a straight only li lane and he's turning left and then another car followed him. So as the taxi was heading towards the front of the queue the driver said, don't let him in! Obviously to no one but himself, because no one could hear him. And then, by the time the second car, the person behind the driver commented, Chazirim, which is the Hebrew for pigs. So now, let's focus on the lens. What lens is there? Now, it means as follows. If I'm, the lens I'm using is, I'm not looking through the lens of I'm looking through the lens I need to the lens I need to apply the label of that derogatory terminology to those two drivers. I have no idea why they're doing that. I have no idea if they in a massive rush. I have, I have no clue why they did it. I have, it could be because they're just extremely selfish people and they didn't wait the extra three minutes. It could be that they're in a massive rush because they've got some type of urgent meeting to get to. It could be because one of them has just heard the tragic news that a relative's been diagnosed with some type of horrid disease and they want to be we have no idea there's a huge piece of information missing so we have to have assumptions in order to be able to categorize them as being lowly human beings which is what we're doing right we're making massive assumptions what causes those assumptions to be made it's quite simple i'm in a bus and i don't want to be put off possibly the two seconds later that I'll have to go past this traffic light because of their presence or even worse if they there so I'll go back three in the queue and the traffic lights will change before I get there and then I'll have to wait another three minutes so the 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 the, the, the loss dealt with over here is three minutes of time now the bus driver wasn't exceptionate for his next route so it means he's not going to necessarily have major consequences to those three minutes of time being taken away from him. And that's, a, that's the nature of a bus driver is there's traffic. So, so it's not a massive thing. The person sitting behind me was a grandfather with his two grandchildren and they were in no hurry to go anywhere because they were just, you could see that they weren't, for, 
So it's three minutes, which is three minutes of time, which is not that I'm exceptionally late for a bad, bad, for, for an important, it's three minutes of time. So what's my perception? My perception, the lens I'm seeing the world is that if you dare to inconvenience me, you're a pig. That's the frame. The frame is anyone that gets in my way is a pig. That's such a sad way of seeing the world. What have you done? What have you done? You don't know what these people are. But you've labelled them. You've gone and you've... You've done a character assassination of these two people. Why? Because in my mind frame, only people who are worthy of being called human beings are people that don't, don't interfere with the way I want things to go. That's, that's very, very sad. You're going to, you're going to prostitute the power of speech for that you're going to drag it into the gutter for that let's put in a new lens let's put in a new lens let's put on the lens of there's a creator in the world like the Rosh says and believe 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 in the notion of a directed world. So it means there's nothing bad. Everything is ultimately coming from the same source. So now I'm seeing the world that way and I see two people encroaching on the, on the line and it may inconvenience me. So first of all, the world that I'm in is not the world where my world defines right and wrong. It's interesting. There are two people that are poking at my level of patience. Because I was sitting behind them and it wasn't like I said, Guys, welcome! Anyone else? Come on! I was also annoyed. Yeah, I, was, I was also annoyed. I wouldn't go as far as to lose my Kecha Dibber on it, but I was certainly annoyed. But why was I annoyed? I was annoyed because I didn't have the logic override yet to say, listen, if there's people who are encroaching on the space, so there's a reason why that's happening to me at this point in time. It's the difference between living in a random world and a reasonable world. By reasonable world, I mean things happen for reasons. So in other words, the creator in his control of the world could easily have changed things. Now, this is where the point comes. How do I know? How do I could have changed things? Maybe he couldn't. Because I know that in Egypt, he had such control that he took water and he made it into blood. That's impressive. But then he took a glass of water and I would be put a straw in and sip from one side and Mahmoud Rohalba would be <laughs> <laughs> drinking out of the other side and I'd be sipping clear, cool water and he'd be sipping blood. So I see even in one little event, if he needs a different lesson to be learned, that lesson can be learned. If he needs something else to happen, that can happen. So I have a precedent, I have this pre and this precedent has been passed down to me from my parents, 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 <coughs> and it's been printed on my, my arm, I wear it every day and on my head, and once a year I create an entire event which lasts for seven days with a huge pedagogical demonstration of exactly how it occurred called the Seder and Pesach, and I eat specific food in order to do that. 
and every single time there is any type of festive experience so we relate it back to that point and twice a day twice a day there is a Torah obligation to recall this so it's been so inculcated into the Jewish psyche in order that when we see life progressing and we think things are random we have a reference point to go back to and say aha understand things aren't random and understand that the appearance may be random but they're always there to teach me a lesson so I have a completely different lens of perceiving the world. As a result of that lens, I see people differently, I see events differently, I respond differently. It creates an entire different arena and spectrum of emotions which are awoken at any given soul. Point. I'll give an example of this. It's quite a fascinating switch in how one perceives people and events that occur. This is from the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov describes the world as a mirror. He says that everything you see is reflecting you. Rabbi Nachman goes one step further. And he brings a Mishnah in Pirka Avot, which says the only time a person is given punishment, is punished, is called to din, is when he himself judges the case and finds himself guilty. He will not be found guilty unless he, pro unless he proclaims the sentence upon himself. Well, that's quite strange. When does he do that? When have you been consulted in regard to any of judgments placed on you if you're liable or you are innocent? So the way Rabbi Nachman explains it is by using the case of David Amelech as a marshal. David Amelech, we can't understand what he did or how he did. Any person that said that David Amelech did a sin, but whatever he did, Putting that aside, the complexity of the particular case of David and Bathsheba when he took the wife of Uriah Chiti and married her. Uriah Chiti was lost in battle. Nasan Hanavi comes and he says to him, there once was a rich man who had many sheep and a poor man that had but one. And the poor man cherished the sheep and he raised him and he cared for him. And the rich man had a guest come over and he decided to serve him the finest of his flock. So he took the poor man's sheep, slaughtered it and served it to his guest. Said Nasan Hanavi to David Amelech, <coughs> what should happen to that rich man? David Amelech said, that man's liable for the death penalty. Now exactly why that is and how that is. But he said, that man is liable. So Nasan Hanavi said to, me, said to him, that man is you. Why did you take Bathsheba from Uriachiti? You're not lacking wives, as it were. Says the Rabbi Nachman, in our lives, whenever we have something that we have done, and a Kosh seeks our own decision on how we are liable or innocent from what has occurred, what he does is, he allows an event where the conceptual principles are the same, and sees how we relate it. So say for example, I'm negligent in the way I speak about people and I'm very derogatory. So Hashem, and I say, I say about Shimon that Shimon is just, he's just, he's just bone idle, he just doesn't do anything. So what happens is I'll be sitting down at the table and the two people next to me will be having a discussion and I'll overhear them and I'll say how one will say to the other, it's amazing. Ruvain is one of the most selfish people I know. When I hear that, I think to myself, 
I'll think of, I could think one of two thoughts. I could think, uh, how can a guy speak Loshnara? That's disgusting. I'm just passing on myself guilty. <laughs> or, or, now this is Reb Nachman's Kiddush. It's a fascinating Kiddush. Or, I can say, I'm sure that that person who said those bad words, there must be some type of extenuating circumstances that I'm not understanding. It's probably because he didn't want to say those words, but there's been some type of deep enmity between them, or because he wasn't thinking straight, or because he's had a really bad day. And in doing so, you simultaneously, simultaneously exonerate yourself from the din on you. But Hashem knows your intentions. So, like so correct. But Hashem judges you according to your judgment. So therefore, that's what Rav Nachman said is that the principle of dan the kafskus, judging a person favorably, goes across the board and is not just a nice thing to do, but it's an entire way of living. But again, the premise of it all is that things happen for a reason. You need Yitzhak Mitzrayim to give me the conscious awareness that the relationship between the creator and the creations is an intimate one. It's not far off. It's involved in the particular this lice or even louse going on this skin. Kinim. It's about this boil erupting on this piece of flesh. So you see Hashem controls the dermatological molecular structure of your skin. Because Egyptians were afflicted with boils. He, dis- he manipulates the world of wildlife because they were wild animals, Orif. The winds and the locusts and the crops are under his control. So where t- where if you have something to eat, it's deliberately because. It's a different way of living. It's a different lens to see the world. So the Rosh calls on us to contemplate this. Now again, there's the ideal and there's working towards the ideal. I'm not saying that from now on person has to go from 0 to 100 in under 3 seconds and try to see the Ashkocha Pratis and the fact that, wow, it's amazing look at this Siddur, came straight to me, wow thank you Hashem wow again, always remember the two commandments that Rabbi Israel Salante invented, the 614th and 15th, they were 614 was a negative transgression don't be stupid and 615 was a positive commandment to be normal. You always, when growing, you always, when growing, have to bear those two things in mind. Otherwise, you'll land up as a possibly Messiah. Unfortunately, you'll be the only one that knows it. And when you're the only one that knows your Messiah, that's when they put you in a home. <laughs> it's unfortunate. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a common, it's a common malady in, in, in this. It's actually called Jerusalem syndrome. It's a common psychological, psychiatric condition. People think they're Messiah. And it's actually called the Jerusalem Syndrome, and I think it happens quite regularly here. I mean in the Sheru. <laughs> <laughs> so gentlemen, it's something, but it's something certainly to awaken the awareness inside of us of perhaps how the world around us is, and it's challenging us to no, the notion of what is a lens, and which lenses am I using to see the world.